0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca-bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Shiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Michael Decker for a conversation about the founding of Constantinople. Dr. Decker is Associate Professor of History at the United Arab Emirates University, based in the UAE. He is author of the book, The Byzantine Art of War, which was published by West Home Publishing. And he's the author of the forthcoming book, The Sasanian Empire at War, Persia, Rome, and the Rise of Islam, 224 to 651, which will be published by West Home Publishing as well. Welcome to call, Michael.
1: Thank you very much. Nice to visit with you.
0: So we know that at one point in history, Constantinople um, is... Uh, is established as a uh, a city and a very important one uh, to the uh, Roman Empire. And before we get into the uh, Roman Empire and then uh, contemporarily, uh, more contemporarily, you, you called the Byzantine Empire, and we'll kind of get into that that piece. But before Constantinople is formed, um, can you describe what the geopolitical environment? would have been like in rome in the roman empire someone listening may think well it's you know it's called the roman empire um why not just have the roman empire's capital be in rome so so from a geopolitical environment can you describe what it was like both both geopolitically uh speaking of internally within the empire but also externally
1: Sure. Yeah. The, so by the third century, we're talking kind of right before the foundation of Constantinople, which which was founded and just had its anniversary, the eleventh of May, three thirty. So the empire, Roman Empire, was uh, in what historians call the third century crisis. And this was a period of, or anarchy, some have called it, because it's it's a time of military and civil upheaval. The empire was simply under such great pressure externally and also suffering from so many problems internally that the fabric of the state was really just being pulled apart. Things like runaway inflation, we had epidemics, pandemics, something like smallpox probably that killed a huge portion of the population. We also had military anarchy with one emperor after the other, taking over. These were soldier emperors, and they spent, if they visited Rome at all, they spent almost no time there. So that's kind of a way to answer your question. First of all, we have chaos. We have civil disorder. We have the fragmentation of the empire into, at one point, into competing states. And then we have really the idea that Rome is no longer the center of the universe politically. That would be where the most powerful general with the most powerful army is. So the Romans got used to dealing with emperors who were living on the frontier in places like Milan, places like Trier, um, even in, in far-flung places like York, there were people that had imperial pedigrees. So there was this move to go where the trouble was, if you would. And the uh, Constantinople comes out of that impulse. The, the empire itself was divided in two, into two halves, a western half, which was basically followed the boundaries of the Latin speaking world that ends kind of in the, the western Balkan peninsula, and then the eastern half, which was the most urbanized area, the areas of the ancient Fertile Crescent that belonged to the empire from Egypt up to Anatolia which tended to be more urbanized and wealthier. And obviously that's an area where Constantinople would be, would be founded. So the uh, Emperor Diocletian who ruled 284 to 305 is really the person who helped to divide the empire in this way. And he did so by establishing a a unique system, a college of emperors And so he would have two Augusti, two emperors. So each emperor was Augustus, one in the east, one in the west. And then each Augustus had a Caesar, an imperial colleague, who was basically his heir-designate or his heir-apparent, who would also be his his right-hand man, if you will, who would go and fight the fires that needed to to be fought on the frontiers, especially either against Persia or against the the Germanic tribes uh, in the north. So that's uh, Diocletian himself spent most of his reign living in Nicomedia, in what is today Turkey. So uh, it wouldn't be a shock then to find another city founded, although there's still debate about whether or not Constantinople was intended really to be a capital in the way that it, it evolved. I think it was, but others, you know, make arguments against it but i think they're really there's good evidence to show that it was taken very seriously from the beginning as a as a viable capital for the empire for the eastern empire
0: okay so diocletian um divides the empire produces this concept of a western half and eastern half invents the concept of a uh tetrarchy so you have uh an Augustus and a Caesar in the west, uh, an Augustus and a Caesar in the east. Diocletian isn't the Roman emperor that founds Constantinople, o- obviously. Um, it was... Uh, co- uh, well, actually, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to ask it as a question. <laughs> I, almost, yeah, almost there, yeah. I almost went there, Michael. I almost went there. <laughs> okay, so how do we how do we then get to okay so Diocletian uh, divides the Empire. Can you uh, speak about then so what what happens next? How do we kind of work work up to the actual founding of Constantinople?
1: Right, so the Emperor Diocletian abdicates in 305, which again was an extraordinary moment. He decided to essentially test his new system. He decided to see, I guess, to to make an analogy, if the top would keep spinning or if it would topple over. And so he took the unprecedented step of removing himself from power. He was in ill health, but in any case, emperors did not do this, they died in office. So uh, he stepped aside and uh, wanted to see how his colleagues would perform and they performed pretty much as they had done in the years coming up to his rule, which was immediately began to fall into civil war. And of those contending for power, Constantine, who was a, the son of Constantius, who had been a Caesar, so a junior emperor in the West, Constantine rose up uh, acclaimed by his troops, in Roman Britain and basically began very methodically to move on to the continent and then begin to challenge for power. Now the civil wars that would carry Constantine to supreme power are, you know, that's the subject of multiple podcasts and it's very complicated political history. But let's just say that a number of things were in play here. There were, there was, was Constantine's personal ambition, of course, and his, his own his own concern with rising to power. There's also the condition of the Christians of the Roman Empire, with whom Constantine had a strong affinity, let's say. Again, there is still debate about, and scholars hold different positions about Constantine's relationship to Christianity. And there's still also debate about how many Christians were talking about in the Roman Empire of the early fourth century. The answer to, I think, the latter question is they were a significant minority and in some places likely a majority. And Constantine himself certainly recognized the growing influence of this Christian community. So he, in the course of civil war, the Civil Wars, Constantine joins uh, forces with various other imperial colleagues, Licinius being one of them. And Uh, Famously at the Battle of the Nelvian Bridge on the 28th of October, 312, he defeats, Constantine defeats Maxentius, his great rival in the West. What comes out of that is Constantine and Licinius, his ally, Licinius is ruling the East at the time, the edict, the famous Edict of Milan in February 313 which you will still see incorrectly said by historians, some historians, certain students of history, that this you know, was an, a recognition or a, a basically official recognition of Christianity. It was really no such thing. It was essentially the, uh, uh, an edict of toleration, which made Christianity legal or not illegal, let's say. It was not given special sanction, but one could be a Christian and, and practice Christianity Openly, And this was a big deal because obviously Diocletian had been a great persecutor of Christians as had his immediate successors. And this meant that a whole new wave of support came to Constantine. The Christians also viewed this as a new day for themselves. And it's clear from Constantine's subsequent actions that he took a strong interest and saw the potential in Christianity as a political tool, not simply as a religion. So I wanted to talk about those things because they're also embedded within the foundation of Constantinople as well, which was kind of a Christian city, but not as Christian as as it would become, obviously. It was founded uh, essentially as a pagan city, I think in many ways.
0: So the um, fourth century, how much the, the 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 church in Rome was around by that that point, um, and other Christian churches were were around in the in the in the in the basin and potentially elsewhere. Um, how how uh, influential in the fourth century would the would the Roman Christian Church have been and. What, what do you think, if it's either known or if you have to infer, what, what, what do you think, um, which Christian church would Constantine have most identified with uh, once he adopted Christianity?
1: So the, the church at Rome was nowhere near, obviously, as influential as it would become. It was obviously an important, bishopric because it was still the, you know, Rome was the biggest city, certainly in the Western Mediterranean and of great import mentally and socially for the Roman state. So sure that there were, there was a tradition, long Christian tradition there going back to, um, early say first century, even traditions linking Rome to, Christianity in a very serious way. We, obviously, we know about the martyrdoms that occurred there with, with Peter and Paul, and there's not really good reason to doubt those things. So the church had apostolic foundations, and you had the uh, early bishops of Rome, like Clement of Rome, who were in influential writers and thinkers within the early Christian movement. So Rome was important, no doubt. Now... The, the role of Christians in Constantine's court, obviously his biographer Eusebius was a Christian and it, it's Eusebius who seems to have been uh, quite influential uh, in religious areas having to do with Constantine. So um, his relationship again is not with Christianity is, is rather ambiguous and it's not something that I think is, is really terribly easy to, to unravel. You know, he was certainly baptized as was the practice in the day he was baptized on his deathbed, only on his deathbed. This was obviously after he'd committed a number of rather heinous crimes, the murdering his wife and son, for example, after he uh, accused them of having an affair with one another. Stepmother and and son, so um, he he did this. It seemed his deathbed uh, baptism was done to kind of you know, as as was expected and believed at the time to wash away all of one's sins, and so he held it off to the precise last minute, which is what what one did. So uh, yeah, his relationship with Christianity is is not entirely, you know, clear in many ways. He certainly built a number of pagan temples in Constantinople. And he continued to use a lot of pagan imagery in his coins, in his building programs. Uh, he, he certainly was uh, a follower of the unconquered sun, Sol Invictus. That was one of his main cults that he seemed to sponsor as emperor. Uh, on the other hand, you know, he did confiscate temple wealth, from took, took wealth from pagan temple sanctuaries and gave it to Christians throughout the empire. So, you know, he, he's a complex figure and yes, he's a saint in the Orthodox church today, but uh, he also had a lot of irons in the fire. I think you would say politically and perhaps personally too, you know, we tend to be as, as moderns and postmoderns, very cynical about a person like Constantine and think he's just using these things for one reason or the other. And that's often how he's portrayed. But, I also think we have to remember that that he's a, a, a person with probably complex and, and not entirely non-contradictory elements to his personality and to the way he thinks. It is astonishing that he sees fit to call, you know, all the bishops of the Christian world to Nicaea, which is modern Iznik in Turkey in the year 325, and holds well, what is the world's first ecumenical church council? He establishes the precedent that the emperor calls the the council, the church to council. And there can be no, at least in Orthodox theology, there can be no church council without the presence of an emperor. So there's not been any church council of, of ecumenical variety since 1453, when the Byzantine empire fell to the Ottoman Turks. So he's a fascinating character in this way. And uh, certainly, you know, there, there must be a political element to, to his uh, flirtation, let's say, or his relationship with Christianity. But I also think there's probably something personal there as well. You know, his mother is, of course, said to have been a, a staunch Christian, which is where he would have origi- originally come to, to understanding something about the faith. And Helena herself is really the founder of the Holy Land. I mean, it's an astonishing moment in history between what mother and son actually accomplish regarding the promulgation of of Christianity. It's it's really kind of probably not appreciated enough, their impact in history.
0: Interesting, yeah. Um, An entire episode could probably be focused on... uh... Helena, and uh, in that in that uh, that event. Um, so I'm going to go back. So I will go back to thank you for expanding on all that, Michael, and may, maybe more closer to the end of the episode because I want to get back to the founding of Constantinople. Um, but I'm probably going to ask if we have time then about the church in Constantinople and when when that kind of starts to um, have more more influence. But I think we can set that aside for now, so we can go back to the Events um, surrounding the founding yeah. of Constantinople, um, but right before we get to that, um, before Constantinople is founded, Constantine's in power. Where do you do you think or know if he considered himself and his empire to have a capital, and if so, where was that capital?
1: Well, that's a good question. You know, I. I'm not sure I could answer that fully. I would say that Constantine had been a hostage at the court of Diocletian in Nicomedia. So I think for him, you know, this idea of there being an imperial city outside of Rome was, was certainly something he was used to, you know, wouldn't have taken him a great leap to, to figure that we can found other great cities. He'd obviously spent time in Trier as well. So, and, and built there, you know, established buildings and, and done things that an emperor would do. So I think that for Constantine, it, it was really more about where the emperor is, where the emperor is, that is the capital. And uh, so many of his contemporaries really spent again, very little time if they visited Rome at all. Now, obviously, Constantine did build in Rome, and he. we have the great arch of Constantine there. We have the the colossal statue that survives of Constantine in Rome. So he had a relationship with Rome, but I, it was not the kind of umbilical relationship that you'd think of between the emperor of Rome and the city of Rome. It was really now a, a shifting uh, focus of power that the, the the seat of government is where Caesar is. Where is the emperor? And along with the emperor goes basically all the apparatus of government, all of the officials, minting, all of the administrative capability. And quite frequently, you know, that whole apparatus was on the move because these men were not simply emperors; they were also soldiers. They were actively fighting, moving from place to place, and so. That, I think, really, that that mobility and the need to move along the frontiers really undermined this notion of the permanent capital city uh, as such. And I think that's one of the reasons why Constantinople, when it's founded, really takes root in the period after, you know, Constantine, after the end of these soldier emperors. Which really ends because of the catastrophe of the death of the emperor Valens in 378, fighting the Goths at Adrianople. After this, the Romans probably wisely come up with the idea: maybe this is not a good idea, and you know, maybe we should not have our head of state campaigning in person to be killed at the hands of barbarians. And so that ends until you know the year six. 10, when Heraclius uh, revives that practice. So it, there were several centuries there where the emperors really stayed in Constantinople and their focus was therefore Constantinople. And these are the emperors that you can see building things. Valens built the aqueduct of, of Constantinople, one of the biggest, probably the biggest aqueduct system in the Roman world. People like Theodosius built the great forum of the, of the capital and so, each emperor wanted to leave his mark on the city in multiple ways, generally through each one built palaces and monumental structures, churches in many cases. So that that idea of you know the place, the capital being the center of the universe becomes more pronounced after the days of Constantine.
0: Okay. Um so, at some point, and you said at, at one point, probably earlier in his career, he was at court in Nicomedia. Was it Nicomedia? Yeah, Nicomedia. So, let's go to the actual founding of Constantinople then, Michael. What what happens?
1: So, Constantinople is founded in part because of the victory that Constantine won in September of 324. It's actually the battle was fought against his old ally, Licinius, and um, Constantine is victorious. This is really the battle that allows him to unite the entire empire under his rule. So one empire again, under one emperor. And so he doesn't build the city at Chalcedon, which is on the Asiatic side of Bosphorus, but he builds it on the European side of the Bosporus, on the Hellespont. And that had a previous Greek polis, or city-state, now obviously a city, a within the Roman Empire, called Byzantium, on it. It it was a peninsula, it's well-situated on the waterway between the Black Sea and the Aegean. So he was thinking certainly strategically. There are later legends that depict the emperor walking what would be the boundary lines of the city. And he keeps walking further and further. And there's basically a remark made by one of his followers asking him how long he will walk because the city is obviously getting quite big. And Constantine is said to remarked something like, I will stop when he who guides me tells me to stop, right? So he's he always has a direct line to God, it seems, or or a God anyway. And so he does choose, though, very wisely, because Constantinople has a number of great natural characteristics. It's got a deep water harbor on the north called the Golden Horn. Obviously, we just mentioned it sits in Europe, but really uh, just across a narrow channel from Asia, Asia Minor. So what's today, Turkey was destined to become the heart of the Byzantine Empire for most of its existence. So I mean, it had good communication with these places. And it, it also had, you know, a fantastic, just strategic position. It was... On the sea, great access to the sea lanes, and it was defensible. It also lay pretty close to the Danube frontier where the Romans were having constant trouble. So that was a strength in the sense that it gave the emperor access to these areas in times of emergency. And it was also close enough to the east, to the eastern frontier, that it could be uh, a jumping off point for the campaigns the emperors would need there. But it was far enough away that it could be protected, and this was needed. It, would, it could be protected by the strategic depth that the empire afforded it. So it was a brilliant choice. I'm not sure that Constantine, even though he was not a humble man, if he could have possibly envisioned the immense success that his city would enjoy. I think it's it's an equally astonishing question: is not how did Constantine? find this place and establish such a city, but why hadn't it happened prior?
0: Okay, so what's known, Michael, about the um, term Byzantium? So you mentioned it was, there was a city there prior to Constantinople called Byzantium, whether a village or a a city. Um, What's known about the actual etymology or the origins of that name or even what, what what it means in English?
1: So the, what we know, we don't know a lot about the, the Greek city-state Byzantium. It's was supposedly founded by uh, Byzes, that is the, the local Thracian king. And there are later stories, these are all collected, by the way, in a group of texts called the the Patria. Very weird reading. It gives you a kind of, history and tour guide of Constantinople compiled in the 10th century. And it's a very interesting set of set of stories. But uh, they, the
0: author or the compiler of the Patria gives a number of, of possibilities. And, and of course
1: one of them is a famous story that the site of Byzantium was where the goddess Hera uh, was annoyed one day and she sent a gadfly down to this, this cow that she didn't like and drove it across the body of water, which is how the, the name Bosphorus, the bosforos, the carrying of the cattle, how it gets its name. And uh, Byzas, this, uh, this early king, there are some legendary stories about him. But basically, it seems like this is a pretty small fishing city that is uh, quiet backwater. We know that in the third century, it is given a pretty substantial facelift by the Emperor Septimius Severus. So he built a new forum there and other public monuments to probably give it more of an aspect that a proper Roman city would have. So there wasn't nothing there when Constantine came, but there wasn't a whole lot. And he was able to basically take something and refashion this into uh, a modern, for the day, entirely new space that was fitting to be the capital of, of his empire. And of course, naming it after himself, I think, is significant, probably not, you know, as significant as some people would think, because some some people, obviously Alexander the Great, I think founded something like 28 cities with his name. So, um, you know, who knows if Constantine had in his mind that this would be the only Constantinople that it would be founded. I, I doubt
0: it yeah and that was one of my questions uh, if, if it's actually known if scholars know why he um, founded um, or why he named the uh, subsequently the Byzantium why right? he changed the name or, or uh, into Constantinople um, or if it's or if it's inferred so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna ask you in a moment if uh, if there is anything that's known about that and if there's not that's completely um, fine, But as I was thinking about that question, I, I, th- I, I, was, I was pondering if there was tradition around the, the name. He kind of highlighted that with Alexander uh, the Great. And I also think of the popular um, uh, myth, legend of uh, one of the, the popular uh, myths, legends of the founding of Rome when you have uh, Romulus and Remus. Um, so you know, wondering if uh, maybe he's just following uh, uh, tradition or something or a common practice at that point in time. What do you think? Is there anything known, or or what can you infer about why he uh, ended up calling it Constantinople?
1: Well, certainly there were precedents for this. Like the, obviously, the Emperor Hadrian built cities. Hadrianople uh, was was named after him, and it was so that obviously not an immediate predecessor of Constantine, but it was part of what an emperor's job, what made an emperor a good emperor, was building. And the more building the better, and and so much the better if an emperor could build a city. So Constantine was really following in this long tradition of imperial building programs. City building was not as common in terms of naming it after emperors that it would become, but there were places like, you know, Diocletianopolis. There were places like, uh, especially later Marcianopolis, named after the Roman emperor Marcian. So almost every one of his successors would build a, a city or at least remodel a city and rename it. So that was very common practice because so it was seen again as the duty of an emperor to be a builder, to be a renovator, to be a restorer, something that would give a public face to the political efforts that one was making. So that became very common. And I do think Constantine influenced that. He didn't invent it, but he certainly influenced it. And he certainly inspired it as well, that he reinforced this notion that good emperors are emperors who build things. And his most famous, I guess, imitator in that way would be Justinian. In the sixth century, who you know built like crazy and built so much. And if he didn't build it, he still claimed he built it. You know, even if his immediate predecessor Anastasius built it, we have instances where Justinian took credit for it. So there was a lot of cachet in this kind of large-scale building activity. And I think Constantinople fits into that tradition. It's a great way to make a statement, too, about the favor of the gods or the favor of God, depending on, on what religion you subscribe to. But it was in large part, you know, a monument, a living monument to celebrate his victory and the divine inspiration or the divine guidance that really led to his being chosen, right? Trial by battle. It was his, He was the man chosen to reunite and lead this unified empire into whatever its destiny was to be.
0: So, when it comes to population, Michael, uh, while you were providing that response, I did a quick Google search, and um according to Google, uh, Istanbul uh, present day has over fifteen million people as a population. Do scholars have any sense of what the population of Constantinople would have been at its height under Roman Byzantine rule, and what the city's population at its height would have been under Ottoman rule
1: I can try yeah so they, we have a couple clues about that and very early on it seems like Constantinople had quite a large population there were so there there's something called the Anona kibika they it's a free basically it's a handout of foodstuffs given by the emperors to the population and there's an early text that mentions that Constantinople has, and by this, I mean, it's, I think, 4th century, so contemporary to Con- with Constantine or very shortly afterwards, it might be early 5th century, that talks about there being 80,000 of these bread tickets handed out. Now, it should be stressed that that's not simply for 80,000 people because these are very large, you know, pieces of, uh, or allotments of bread. They're, they're more than a pound in other words it's enough for more than one person to live on so you have to think of them more as a, a person two people maybe more depending on their social standing receiving free rations which is one of the ways in which he he immediately drew a lot of people to the city so that's that's one thing we know for sure that they they're, the population you know, he moved, people from other cities there, he moved prominent Roman senatorial families from the old city of Rome to the new city of Rome to immediately give it the sort of cachet and to bring in wealthy individuals that would give it the kind of civic life that every city needed to survive at the time. So I think that's, that's a crucial indicator of the fact that this is a very large city by ancient standards right from the get-go. Terms of how many people there are. So that is based in part on this figure I gave you about the the bread toll earlier, and also the expansion of the city walls, which we know, you know, very quickly the town outgrows Constantine's boundaries, and it is the walls are expanded in the fifth century to meet the threat of the Huns who are approaching. So that's, that's we know that the city grows very, very quickly. The, a, a good estimate I think of the population basically is anywhere from, in terms of the, the peak of the city, say fifth and sixth centuries, anywhere from a quarter million to a half million. So it is really a broad range that we have. And we're assisted a little bit in this, and we have this remarkable document called the Notitia Urbis Constantipolitanae, which is basically it's a survey of everything that's in the city in terms of public buildings, private buildings and so on from the fifth century. And it gives a region by region breakdown from which we can draw some numbers. Now that interestingly has never been put to the kind of use I think that it could be. Uh, We have pretty crude, demographic practices in, uh, among a lot of historians of this period. So we don't have a lot of, of, we haven't put that to really good use, but it gives totals, for example, of, of bakeries, public bakeries and churches and palaces and so on. So, um, for, to give you an example, this is a fifth century. There are 4,388 houses listed. And again, those are not necessarily simply single family, Homes. You have to imagine that many of these are multifamily and multi-story homes. So this city is right away important and it grows probably, I would say, up to the half million mark by the sixth century peak and probably approaches that again after the demographic decline of the dark ages of the seventh and eighth and, and early ninth centuries. It recovers probably up to that neighborhood, say half million or so, around the 11th century during the the peak of the, of the medieval Byzantine Empire. And then we know after the sack of the city by the Fourth Crusade that it really very severely declines. So that by the Ottoman conquest of 1453, some estimates I've seen are of a city with only maybe 50,000 people. So you really are talking there about a small group of people living within these splendid, what must have been just an astonishing open air museum, you know, a ruin of this grandeur of this fantastic civilization. Uh, And we know this is true because we have, we have early traveler accounts to the Ottoman empire that describe things uh, that are no longer extant that were there, that were ancient monuments that were clearly visible that were being you know, taken and used as building material elsewhere and so on. So that, that must've been a really surreal scene. And probably in the Ottoman period, I would say you're talking about a city again at its peak up in the, the half million to 600,000 person mark. Obviously today, and you know, if you visited Istanbul, it's, it is just unfathomably large, something like 16, over. I think it's over 16 million now. And it's, you know, traversing Istanbul is a real nightmare. It's it's just such a massive place now.
0: A couple closing questions, Michael. And I'm going to ask it inside of the the same um, kind of line of speech here. uh, So you can probably tackle both in the same. um, uh, They're different questions, but you can tackle both in your response. So when does the... Uh, church I want to come back as I said I would earlier in the conversation right. about the church in constant constant Constantinople when when does that when would you say that the church in constant the Christian Church in Constantinople begins to pick up substantive influence in that in the uh, context of um, uh, Christianity uh, its network um, geopolitical type influences and and then the other part is during the um, during the uh, uh, Constantine's uh, reign, did he consider Constantinople the capital of Rome?
1: Yeah, the the Christianity part is certainly there's a there's a there's a presence of the Christian Church there from the beginning. There are a couple of churches listed, and not not as many as you would think, actually in the. The document I mentioned earlier, this 5th century, basically an inventory of the city space. So there are a handful of churches that are listed. The uh, church itself is not as important as it would become. In the 380s, there's a council, church council that is held in Constantinople that really elevates the status of Constantinople to the level of the patriarchs of the other chief bishops that is of the Christian empire. I think I've got my date right there, but it essentially mm-hmm. Constant Constantinople, because it then is the political seat of the, of the Roman empire and is acknowledged as such. The view among the the church leadership is that it needs a bishop of significant stature. So someone who is at that time an equal to the, patriarchs in Rome and Jerusalem and Antioch and Alexandria. So Constantinople gets that elevated, most favored status as basically the a pro, most prominent church in its, in its geographic geo, geopolitical region. So that's a real, I think, key turning point. And obviously throughout the fifth century, we know that Constantinople becomes a, a very Christian city, increasingly Christian city. Um, The the martyr, the bones, the relics, if you will, of of the apostle, or the proto-martyr, I should say, St. Stephen, are brought there. A number of other high-profile relics, Christian relics, are brought there from outside the capital. And so a real Christian landscape is being laid here. There are urban monasteries. So St. John uh, Studios Monastery is founded fairly early on. Obviously, the original Hagia Sophia is founded by Constantine. So there, there, uh, there are a number of Christian structures embedded within this city from the very beginning. And the cult of the Virgin, obviously, is is another important part of this story too. By the fifth century, I mean there are prayers to Mary already surviving in Egypt in the second century. So the the cult of the Virgin Mary is prominent and important and and much older than many people think, especially Protestants. It's much older than most people think. But it becomes really prominent in Constantinople, probably from the fifth century at the absolute latest. And by the seventh century, the cult of Mary, the cult of the Virgin Mary there is crucial. Just the man, she is a, a really emblematic of the city it's kind of amazing the parallel between St. Mary at Constantinople and Athena with Athens. You know, you have this patroness protecting and guarding her chosen city. So it's a really fascinating parallel. So the other question, um, we were wondering about Constantine, whether he thought it would be his permanent capital. Is that right? hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's a, that is a, a difficult question to answer. I would, I would say, yes, he did insofar as he thought any place could be a, an, an imperial capital. Again, he spent so much of his reign on the move and other emperors would spend time. For example, I mentioned Valens who was killed at Adrianople. He spent, and other emperors spent part of their time say at Antioch and there were imperial residences at Antioch, very in Syria, very close to the Persian frontier with whom they were having a lot of problems. But it's again, given the fact that he goes, Constantine goes out of his way, he spends so much and invests so much, he brings in these these prominent people and he plunders plunders the cities of the East for their treasures of public art and for monumental structures to really beautify this city and give it a, a real sense of grandeur. That to me indicates obviously that this, this is intended to be more than simply another provincial city. It bears his name. It's intended to be the residence of the emperor insofar as he has a permanent residence. That's my view. And of course it would be his successors, as I mentioned, that make it so because they really do spend time their their days living in their entire reigns in Constantinople and don't depart.
0: This has been a very substantive conversation with information, Michael. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here.
0: Okay, everybody. The uh, couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode, uh, one is available, one is forthcoming. The book is that is available, The Byzantine Art of War, which was published by uh, Westholm Publishing, and the forthcoming one, also published by West Home Publishing, The Sasanian Empire at War, Persia, Rome, and the Rise of Islam, 224-651. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Michael and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now.